Good morning, everyone. I really have this urge to throw a baseball at somebody right now. I don't know what's happened in my absence, and I assume maybe they've done some of that, but we'll see you next week. Surprise! We'll, we'll try to lob the softball or something. We'll see. So it is uh, continuing in the message series of Minor Prophets, and uh, actually we credit to Pastor Sam. He says, how about we do minor leagues over the summer? I said, well, why not? I haven't done a, a trip through the Minor Prophets before, so we all are assigned different prophets to speak about. Today I'm looking at the book of Amos. If you have your Bibles, you're, feel free to, to already move there in that direction. I'll be walking through this book beginning to end, pulling out some of the key elements and passages, some of these verses you've heard before, and um, I'm just going to walk through this. And the, the goal of preaching is to take God's Word explain what it says, and then apply what it means to our life. And so sometimes pulling out prophets uh, from the Old Testament who are prophesying against nations of old, it's sometimes a challenge to figure out how does that apply to me in 21 century Canada. So um, pray for me that I'll come up with something good today. If you're at home, we miss you, and uh, we're glad you're joining us in the service. We'd love to see you face-to-face one day soon. Uh, so as we were singing a worship song today and people's hands were raised, I just had this picture in my mind of Christ, what it would look like if his hands were raised. And, and I had a view of the nail scars in his hands. And it was a reminder again that he is our sacrifice, he is our life, and that we're here because of what he did for us. Would you mind praying with me as we continue in this service? Thank you, Jesus, for being here. Thank you for your presence through the Spirit of God who searches our hearts, who convicts us of sin, who empowers us and challenges us to do things we would never do on our own, but through your strength, your wisdom, and your guidance, uh, we can move forward into areas that are new and challenging. I pray, Father, as your prophets spoke to your people of old, we would hear the message fresh and clear to ourselves today because we're not often any better than people 3,000 years ago where same challenges, same fears, same temptations, same issues just looks a little different. Guide us today as we explore your word that you would teach us your truth. Uh, Use the words that come out of the preacher's mouth to touch the hearts and the minds uh, of your people so that we'd be more like your son Christ when we leave this place. Thank you and pray in Christ's name. Amen. So Amos was a fig picker. Literally, a farmer, a herder of livestock. He was likely uneducated, grew up in the rural areas. His town was called Tekoa, located about 16 kilometers south of Jerusalem. We call it today the West Bank. And there's lots of settlements going on in the West Bank. We won't get into that. But that's just the place where he came from. He came from Judea, and if you've um, looked at biblical history, the the 12 tribes of of Israel, when they came through Egypt and and did the Jericho thing and crossed the Jordan and settled in the Promised Land, 10 of the tribes were in the northern regions and two of the tribes were in the southern regions. The south was called Judea, the north was called Israel, and Israel was next to Samaria and Assyria, all those areas, and they were constantly tempted to adopt all the ways of the surrounding nations. 
Those gods, those idols, those things that the other countries, other nations were worshiping were always being brought in and incorporated into the lives of the people in Israel. So when I say Israel, I'm not talking about the nation that we have today. I'm talking about the tribes that were in the north, north of Jerusalem. Amos was called, uh, he was an 8th century B.C. prophet, and he was called the prophet of doom. What a reputation. Oh, no. Here comes the prophet of doom. Well, he accurately predicted the downfall of Israel, that they would be invaded and, and essentially wiped out. And so what he said was like, can he not say anything good? Well, he does say some things good in his book today. We're going to look a little bit at that. Uh, he was a contemporary of two other prophets, Isaiah and Hosea. And he, reigned, uh, he served during the, the reign of two prominent kings, Uzziah and uh, the king of Judah. And Jeroboam, the second king of Israel in the north. Remember what Isaiah starts off his book with? In the year Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. This was... The day, the day of Amos as well. Uh, he was one of the very first prophets to hold an entire nation accountable for their sins. He has three themes in his book. Social justice, which is the major one we'll look at uh, today. A God's omnipotence, in other words, God sees. And also divine judgment. And these became the staple of most of the prophet's messages. So, God sees, God cares, and God will bring justice. Same kind of thing that we hold to today. When I see what's happening uh, in Ukraine and other places around the world, I have to believe the same thing, that God sees and that God cares and God will bring justice. There's a lot of Christians in Ukraine. It's 90%, I believe, or 85% Christian nation, and they're crying out to him too in their time of need. And I have to believe that justice will be served in the coming days. Amos' message uh, revolves around the idea of one's love for God should translate into actual concern for others. In other, in other words, you can't say you love God and ignore the needs of those around you. You have to be actually personally involved in caring for other people. Or your love for God is empty. It doesn't mean anything for you to come and worship God if you ignore the needs of people around you day after day. Theology is more than a concept. It's lived out in specific actions towards those around us. So the level of care and ministry we show others indicates the level and the depth of relationship we have with God. If you can walk by people that have needs each day or ignore those that are in trouble or, or not care for those that are undergoing Certain stresses in their life, there's lots of different ways it presents itself. If you just walk your way, drive into your garage, shut the door, turn on Netflix and, and say, whoa, glad I made it home again. So much destruction out there. Uh, there's something wrong at the heart of your relationship with God if that's what happens. So it doesn't prove our love for God when we care for others. It, it demonstrates how much we love God when we care for his people for those that he loves. So Amos is going to challenge us to re-examine our worship for God as well. Because God, it says in this book, despises superficial worship. He, he uh, despises heartless praise and perfunctory religious practices. Amos also targets uh, nations um, and God's people particularly in the north, because 
uh, of their moving away so far away from God and God's heart. But in the end, he still offers hope. And that's the one thing we see about the prophets is that even though doom is coming, gloom is coming, judgment is coming, there, uh, uh, destruction is coming, there's still a chance, there's still hope, there's still an opportunity to repent. And God's judgment will pass. It's like putting, putting the, the lamb's blood on the doorpost and the lentil for the people in Egypt over the last of the ten plagues. If you can... If you can Get to the place where you, you put your faith back in God and trust in him and do what's right. The judgment will pass over. So some of the key verses uh, in Amos, I'm going to start with chapter 3, verse 7. It says this, that surely the Lord does nothing unless he reveals his plans to his servants, the prophets. What this verse says is God wants us to know what he's up to. He will reveal to his people what is on his heart and the kinds of things he wants to do in the community around, in the nation, in your church, in your home, in your lives. He, he, he peels back the curtains, so to speak, and opens the door to let you see what he wants to have happen or what he's about to accomplish. And so he tells the prophets, judgment's coming. I want you to, I'm sending you Amos. So Amos is from the southern tribes of Judah, and he's being sent to the north. I think there's some probably... Maybe, you know, oh, he's from the south. Don't listen to him. Uh, us in the north, we know what's going on. The guys in the south are a little backwards, you know, so don't have to live. But he was sent to other tribes other than his own. And so he brought the, the truth of God's plans to the people in Israel. And it wasn't good news. So when Amos comes and any prophet comes, usually it's the last chance. The prophets were the last resort uh, he, God had patience to a point, and then he says, okay, you know, my patience is done. When, any parents here? <laughs> Have you ever got to that place where you just ran out of patience? There wasn't any more. If you do that one more time, there's going to be consequences. And, of course, the child, I remember my nephew. This is not in my notes, but I remember my this plant that my brother could not, he could not do, he, plants were not a part of his repertoire, but he had one plant close to the door, and it was, it was alive, so it was special, and uh, it was kind of green, and all the rest, you know, were brown, and, <laughs> and so he just cared about this plant because it actually wasn't, it wasn't dying like all the other ones were, and, but there's one particular leaf that the kids like to just grab and, and touch because it felt cool. Don't touch the leaf. You know, preserve the plant. And my nephew would walk over and touch the leaf. And, you know, got his hand slapped. So he walked over and he, he pushed his elbow into the leaf. <laughs> Stop touch. And then he finally went and he, he backed into the leaf. He just had to test the waters. Well, of course, there's a swat involved with that. And I think he probably got the message. But three times he had to touch the stupid leaf. And there's consequences. Like the parent is going, what's going on with my kid? Talk about stubborn. Wonder where he gets that from. <laughs> God is saying, I'm done. I've tried, I've tried, and I've tried, and you refuse to listen. Chapter 2, he says, I even raised up some of your sons as prophets, and some of your young men as Nazarites. But you gave the Nazarites wine to drink and commanded the prophets, saying, Don't prophesy. 
I'm weighed down by you. There's a cart full of sheaves that's weighed down. I'm tired. I can't go on anymore with you. He basically says, my heart is heavy due to your wickedness. So a Nazarite was a person who took a vow of total dedication to God. It could be for a period of time. If you remember the the judge, uh, Samson, the strong guy, uh, Samson was a Nazarite. He was to be raised as a Nazarite. And the, the three things you couldn't do as a Nazarite, one was to drink alcohol, strong drink, wine. Uh, the second is you couldn't cut your hair. And the third thing was you had to avoid uh, contact with dead people, dead bodies. So when it says that you, you gave drink to the Nazarites, what you're, and you told the prophets, don't prophesy, what they're saying is, ah, all this God stuff, yeah, just, it's no, you know, it's not... Don't take it too seriously. Don't, don't be prophesying negative things. No one wants a, a, a downer at the party, you know. Just, just go get along and go along and, and, and hang in there and everything will be okay. Basically, those that had given their lives to serve the Lord, they were discouraged from doing that. Discouraged from following God. Remember what happened to Samson when his hair was cut? power of the Lord left him. His vow was broken. He no longer could serve in the way he did before. Today, rather than discouraging Nazareth, giving Nazarites wine or telling prophets to stop prophesying, people when they have their sins pointed out, they just go to a different church. They go where the standards of God are not taught, where the word of God is watered down, where they won't be told that what they're doing is wrong. They find somewhere, and then you can always find a church that will agree with what you believe and let you do whatever you want to do. Chapter 4, verse 12, you've heard this. You've probably seen it on a placard somewhere by some some well-meaning people on the street. Prepare to meet your God. This is an ominous statement. Prepare to meet your God. If someone said that to you today, what would go through your mind? If I said to you, prepare to meet your God, you'd be like, why? (laughs) Really? Like when? How many hours do I have? I've got to clean the house. (laughs) You know? Prepare to meet your God is an ominous statement because it says God is coming and you're going to have to face him yourself. Depending on how you're doing in your relationship with God, it could be either a very exciting verse or a terrifying one. In this case, it was meant to to bring fear into the hearts of God's people. It was was like the last resort. God's coming, and I don't think it's going to go well for you. But the warning was ignored. The next verse, chapter 5, verse 6, it says, Seek the Lord and live. These, these, these verses I'm pulling out is kind of a, a, a continuation of the theme. Prepare to meet your God. Seek the Lord and live. It's another ominous statement because it has an undertone that the alternative is if you ignore the Lord, you'll perish. This too is ignored by the people. Finally, in verse 24, chapter 5, Amos says what's on God's heart, what the problem is, what What is God looking for when he sees his people? He says, let justice run down like the water and righteousness like a mighty stream. They had become corrupt, and this was the issue. Talking about social justice, uh, 
You know, some people believe that humanity or people are naturally good. Um, yeah, I'm still trying to find some of those people <laughs> that is naturally good because we are not naturally normal. Society is not getting better and better and better. What you see out in the world is the worst of humanity right now. You see, yeah, there's great people. There's, there's not, great things that are happening. There's altruistic kind of things. But in, in all truth, we are not uh, naturally uh, altruistic or we don't naturally sacrifice what we have for the good of others. We have to work at not being selfish. I didn't grow up with much. Uh, my parents were essentially missionaries. We were poor all of our life. And so I, I just, I didn't have new things. I didn't have the latest of anything. And so it's, it's hard for me to not want those kinds of things now that I'm not in my father's home in Saskatoon. It's like, I can afford to get a nice thing or a new thing. And, I, and it, there's this, always this drive to have what I couldn't have or give my kids what I never had growing up kind of thing. Naturally, we want to take care of ourselves before others. We have to fight our desire for comfort versus helping others. We have to resist having uh, to sacrifice uh, anything to help the needy. It's like, uh, I'm gonna, I should do something, but you know, I could really use that money for, for fixing the shed. Or I could, you know, I need to get a new paint job in my car, or all these things that we need to do with our stuff and our resources. You know, if we hold on to things loosely, it's like, someone else has a need, well, here you go. Like, I'm not using it. Why don't you use it for as long as you need? Or I've got an extra one of those. Why don't you just take it? It's hard to want to just sacrifice or not be selfish or not to have comfort for ourselves. And there's desperate and needy people around us all the time. And we don't always recognize who's desperate and needy. I can guarantee you in this congregation, there are desperate and needy people. It may not look like it on their face. It may not look like it when you shake their hands in the auditorium. But when they leave here, they're not in a good place. They don't know what to do next. The decisions are weighing heavy. The finances are struggling. Their kids are, are going crazy. They don't know. They, they came here looking for some hope and some assurance and some help. Maybe it's mental illness. Maybe it's a diagnosis. We don't know. But there are needy and desperate people all around all the time. And we don't always recognize them because we don't take the time to find out sometimes. I have had to talk to lawyers on behalf of people. I've gone to court to stand with people from time to time because they had no one to go with them. And I didn't want them to face the justice system alone. And I, I, was, I was going to be a character witness for them. I, whatever it takes, I was going to intervene and, and make some phone calls just because they don't have any power, they don't have the money, they don't have the high price of the lawyers, and they're standing before a, a judge in a courtroom. It's intimidating and it's intimidating for me to go into a courtroom. I don't normally habitate courtrooms. But here they are, and you're in a system that you don't understand, and they've got laws and rules and procedures. And, and I was three times in a row with a guy that they put off dealing with the, with the, the case. Three times we went there to Surrey Court. Um, well, apparently we're going to have to postpone this. Can you get back in three weeks? Going, it's just like it wears you down. Can you imagine if you were standing before a courtroom with a corrupt judge, and you know pretty sure that your adversary had paid him off already, and that the, it's going to be a done deal. You have no chance. You're standing before someone. You don't have enough money to outbribe your opponent, 
And so you go in there and you're just wondering, what's, what's my fate? There is no justice. There's no righteousness. It's corruption. It's graft. It's under-the-table deals. That's what was going on in this day with Amos. There was no justice. There were no advocates for the poor. They had no recourse against the rich. There was not an accountability for those running the courts who took bribes from their friends against their enemies. can imagine living in that kind of a, a situation, but that's Amos' day, and God saw. Chapter 7, verse 8 and 9, the Lord says to Amos, what do you see? Shows him a vision. He says, a plumb line. The Lord said, I'm using this plumb line to show that my people, Israel, don't measure up. And I won't forgive them anymore. Their sacred places will be destroyed and I will send war against the nation of the king of Jeroboam. The sacred places he's talking about weren't to worship God. They were to worship idols, foreign idols. They were permeating Israel. When you look into the history of Israel, you realize that even when they came out of Egypt, they brought idols with them. They brought foreign gods with them out of Israel, even though God had done the ten plagues, he'd, he'd opened the Red Sea, he provided manna, he'd given the ten commandments, Moses was there, defeated, they still had their idols with them from Egypt. And it never left Israel. They were never totally devoted to God. For us, the plumb line is God's word. He's given us a plumb line, a standard, an expectation for his people. Here's how I want you to live. I I don't want you to lie. I don't want you to covet. I don't want you to to murder and to steal. Like There's things here that that will help society uh, be okay together. But if you're all going to be selfish and and bribe and corrupt, it's not going to work. The Holy Spirit will guide us when it's time to help others out. When there's a need, will reveal things to us. I, I had a friend... I noticed there was something a little off with him a couple months back. Something was different. He was walking a little bit differently. He was being more careful. He was holding his hand a little differently than I noticed before. And I was going, hmm, what's going on with him? And we had him for dinner the other night. And uh, I noticed that his wife was really babying him and helping him out a lot. And so I, I went on the Internet, you know, as you do. You know, you search all the symptoms. You know, you, come, you self-diagnose what all these things might be, and I was really worried about him. So I thought, okay, i gotta, I got to ask. I've got to risk being a fool or being caring because maybe I'm totally off base. And I sent a note, and his wife said, you're very perceptive. <laughs> he's had a, a neurological incident, and he's recovering well. Thanks for asking and for caring. I said, sorry if I'm being nosy. He says, you're not being nosy, you're being caring. I couldn't not ask. My 13-year-old, uh, my son, when he was 13 years old, he asked me, how come we're going to help a movie late? Uh, sorry, how are we going to help? Why are we helping this lady move away from her husband and her home? And I explained to him that she was being abused, and it was a, a very difficult situation. And he says, but why? And he says, well, because she's in need. That's what we do. That's who we are as God's people. We care for those who are hurting and in, in need. And I, and I look at my three kids, and, I, and, and, and somehow they caught it. They're not afraid to be inconvenienced to help others. They're not afraid to sacrifice something they could have used for themselves to help someone else out who's 
who's in need. They, they don't mind um, having their time taken if they could help other people. And I realized as I was looking at this that uh, I've lost track of the number of times I have been the inconvenience. That when I was in need, and people stepped up and helped me. In fact, last week, I was driving on my vacation from Montreal to Quebec City. It's a four-hour drive. It could be three and a half if you, you know, a little heavy on the... But we stopped halfway uh, to get a bite to eat, and I came out of the car, and I noticed that the, la- the back tire was, was really low. And God engineered my stopping to see that as I had... When I looked at the tire, I, right there visibly was a nail head stuck in my tire. It's a rental car, and I know that they don't do uh, repairs on tires. I've had that experience before. And uh, so I thought, okay, what am I going to do? So I went to a gas station. I went to the the air hose. I I filled it up with air, and then I went inside. And because I don't um, parler francaise, um, I was trying all my sign language, you know? (laughs) My tire, you know, you go, you know, it's like, you know, I need a, a, a fix. And says, you need a new tire. No, no, I don't need it. I have a, and I, Google Translate, I have a nail in my tire that I need removed. <laughs> oh, wee, 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 wee. So she started calling tow trucks. Because if a tow could just come to my car, take the nail out, put a plug in, I'm good to go. Like, it doesn't need a major fix. I, I know these things. I didn't have a tire repair kit with me. No t- tow truck. This was 7 o'clock at night. All the shops are closed. I, went, I was driving around trying to find a, a fix-it place or anything, a garage. It's all closed. No tow truck would come. I said, it's not hard. I don't want to spend the night at a petrol can station in a rental car. <laughs> Finally, she calls. She says, oh, here, has, uh, <laughs> handed me her phone. And the guy says, if you can come here, I will fix it for you. Can you drive it? I said, I can drive it. Okay, see you soon. And so some guy stayed after work. Everything was closed up. He was alone in the shop. All the equipment's put away. And I drive up, and he's waiting there for me. Fixed it, you know, three seconds to fix the tire. And we're on our way. And it's just another reminder that I can be a pain. Like, I can be an inconvenience, you know. But I didn't want to sleep in the car overnight. And how many times in my life have people stepped up to help? And uh, mostly involves cars for some reason. I don't know why that is. (laughs) The thing is, we're all here to help one another. And Amos was saying, the rich people, the influential, the powerful, were not helping anybody but themselves. They were totally ignoring anyone in need around them. They didn't care. They didn't have any, any way of showing that they were interested in anybody but themselves. You know, we have people that have a health crisis, a loss of a family member, loss of a job or a home or a broken down car, recovering from addiction, mental illness, all the time, they're all around us. And I just keep saying, well, when's my turn to need help? Well, I have lots of turns. I kind of owe a lot of people an investment in their life to be inconvenienced for them, to step out of my comfort zone, to do things that I wouldn't normally do because someone has an issue. What can I do to help out? And sometimes it's way above my head. But I know people. I can make a call. I can call a friend who can step in and say, yeah, no, don't worry about it. I've got this. I'll take care of this for you. And I've done this in the past weeks where some situations I faced were way beyond me. But I know people. 
and they can help. So a plumb line is, is a, a tool that carpenters can use, particularly when they're putting walls together. And I apologize for leaving my plumb line in my workshop at home. It's a beautiful brass plumb line. But uh, it, it, it shows perfectly straight up and down because of gravity. Natural laws hold the plumb line straight up. It's a, just basically a weight at the bottom of a string. And you put it up against the wall, and you can see how straight your wall is. So if your wall is not straight, what's the, what's the problem? Well, it's not stable. It's not solid. It could crack. It could fall. Any earthquake, it's gone. It doesn't hold well. And then no other wall is going to be straight either. One wall is out. They're all out. You don't have a choice. You can say, eh, don't worry about it. Or you can tear it down to the point where it's straight and build it back up to where it's going to be straight. And then everything else is going to be okay. So God is saying, I'm putting a plumb line with my people. I'm holding up the standard, and I'm measuring my people, and they have moved so far away from what is right and what is just that they are irrecoverable. They have to be torn down. Chapter 5, he exposes their corruption and shows that God's judgment is coming. Verse 10, he says, they... They, they hate the person who rebukes them at the gate, and they despise him who speaks uprightly. So because of your trampling on the poor, and you take tribute of grain from him, and you've built houses of carved stone, but you will not dwell in them. You've planted desirable vineyards, but you shall not drink wine from them. For I know your many transgressions and your many sins. And they afflict the just. They take a bribe. They turn aside the poor in the gate. Seek good and not evil that you may live. And so Jehovah, the God of hosts, shall be with you as you have spoken. Hate evil and love the good and establish judgment in the gate. It may be that the Lord Jehovah, the host, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. What's this about a gate? So at the gates of every city, there's walls around the city for, for protection. And certain gates would have courtyard areas. And the elders of the city or the judges, the rulers would come and they would sit near the gate. And so anyone that came in through the gate that had a dispute or had a business problem, or had been uh, ripped off, or something unfair, they would come, and they would seek justice at the gate. They would, they would petition the rulers for justice. And they said, they, they're so corrupt that this, this activity of meeting at the gate was worthless. It was a waste of time, because all you had to do was give a bigger bribe, and you could find uh, what you wanted. These, these kings and rulers and judges and elders... Uh, we're, we're treating with disregard and disrespect anyone who needed arbitration. They were corrupted. They were open to bribes. And there was no truth and there was no justice. There was no recourse for the poor. And so, chapter 5, verse 21, God goes on. And this is, I don't know if you've heard this over the past years or not, but it still can ring true today. He says, I hate. Not a lot of verses talk about God hating things. Um, but there are some that reveal what he values most. I hate and I despise your feast days. I do not savor your sacred assemblies. I will not accept your burnt offerings, your grain offerings, your peace offerings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not hear the melody of your stringed instruments, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like the mighty stream. He says in, in verse 25, he says, For 40 years you were in the wilderness and you didn't offer me any sacrifices. 
Now you'll have to carry those two idols that you made, Succoth and the one you call, the one you call King and Kawain, the one you built in the shape of a star, and I will force you to march as captives beyond Damascus. The Lord, the God all-powerful has spoken. So he's identifying, he knows the names of the, the idols that they had actually carved out and carried for themselves, even from Egypt, all the way through the wilderness. They had idols, and they still had some of these idols with them. God sees. God knows. So my question in terms of application today is the question of what idols what gods are in our life that prevent us from following Jesus or that shape what we do or what we think or how we act or how we treat others. So there's a few things that I've noticed over the years that I, I would say would be classified as idols in our life. One, and you may not agree with this, it's okay. You can be wrong if you want. But <laughs> I shouldn't say that. <laughs> One is your parents or people in authority over you. I don't know how many potential missionaries were discouraged from going overseas because you're not taking my grandbabies away from us. You're not going off to some foreign land taking my grandkids away. You just stay right here. Well, okay. Or pastors that are people who want to be pastors and, and the parents say, you'll never make enough money to earn a decent living. You're, you don't want to be working in a church. You'll never get it right. They'll always, they will on and on and on. I say, well, I guess you're right. Maybe. I think about the Nazarites and the prophets of the old. What about the missionaries and the pastors today that have all been discouraged from following God, from pursuing noble professions in God's kingdom and bringing a word of truth and hope to people, but they've been discouraged because parents or grandparents or siblings said, that's stupid, you'll never make a living that way. Don't do that. Don't waste your time. Many parents have passed on prejudices and fears as well and anxieties to their kids rather than passing on their faith and their trust in God to protect and provide for their children. I want parents that say, God will provide for you. If that's what God is calling you to do, do it with all of your heart. We'll be praying for you. But instead, they get discouraged from following what God has asked them to do. Honoring mom and dad is not the same as letting them determine whether or not you obey what God is asking you to do. God may ask you to do a hard thing. He may ask you to go overseas for a number of years to take the truth, the gospel message to people who have never heard it, that are waiting and desperate to hear the truth of God's blessings and offer of salvation. Yet we're all sitting, uh, there's, there's pastors I know who, who graduated from seminary and went a church within 15 miles of where they grew up, and that's the only places they'll look because they don't want to have to go out, out of state or out of province or too far from mama. Sorry if that's harsh. The second idol I see is money. The almighty dollar can certainly be a controlling influence over a person. Setting a goal to retire at age 50, uh, having a particular standard of living, or accumulating certain toys, masquerading as investments, or living in a certain neighborhood to obtain certain status can be more of a god than one re realizes. Some people sacrifice everything, including their marriage and family, because money is the most important thing. They would never think about giving to the kingdom of God. That's not, you don't get much return on that. Where the kingdom investments and eternal investments are, they, they're not found with these people. The idol of money, of always getting more. 
but never really giving away. There's an idol of comfort, particularly in the West. We just like our comfort. We like our comfortable cars and our comfortable AC and our comfortable homes and our comfortable jobs and our comfortable lifestyles. And uh, recently, in the past couple of weeks, I've come across people that have actually none of those things. They're living among us and come into our church services. And they're sitting here listening for a word from the Lord. And does he care for me? And is he going to provide for me? And I keep saying, yes, he will, he will, he will. Maybe not at the standard that a lot of other people have. We like to keep our weekly routines. We like to drive a certain class of car. We like to be able to spoil ourselves and indulge in extra nice things from time to time. We don't mind contributing to a cause, but we don't want to have to sacrifice. We like our predictable, careful, controlled life of safety in our own private fortress of comfort. Amos chapter 6 addresses that. Verse 3 says, you push away every thought of coming disaster. No, we're okay. Don't worry about what Amos says. But your actions only bring the day of judgment closer. How terrible for you who sprawl on ivory beds and lounge on your couches eating the meat of tender lambs from the flock and choice of choice calves fattened in the stall. You sing trivial songs to the sound of your harp and fancy yourselves to be great musicians like David. You drink wine by the bowlful and perfume yourselves with fragrant lotions and you care nothing about the ruin of your nation. People who put so much importance in their own pleasure and happiness rarely notice the cares or plight of others in need. The idol of comfort can lead to disaster. What about, and this is a touchy one, politics, ideology. People whose idols is politics or ideologies are willing to sacrifice friendships and family relationships for their belief or political position. If you you disagree with them, you're just an idiot. You're stupid, you're ignorant, you're worse, an enemy. Don't come around. And then there's cancel culture. If you can't support what I believe or disagree, don't be calling around here anymore. Because ideology is more important than a person's soul. They don't realize that their ideology, their political position, is slamming closed the door of any opportunity to ever share the gospel with others. Because you've got to believe like them first about some, something that's the latest fad or the latest craze, I suppose. Let me just say, you've got to rise above ideologies. You've got to rise above politics and see the value of God's kingdom as the priority. Everything else is down below a secondary or third. You've got to care about a person's soul before you care about what they believe and who they voted for. What about fun? The God of fun. Where's the next party? Where's the next adventure, the next cruise ship, the next experience to check off my bucket list? Got a motorbike, got a boat, got a hang glider, got skis, got flying lessons, got pottery class. <laughs> we choose activities according to how much fun they are. Missions committee meeting? That doesn't sound like a lot of fun. <laughs> Cutting out craft supplies for summer camp? That doesn't sound like a lot of fun. Who's going to be there? I can't come to that ministry fair because it's the same night as my hiking club. Don't make me sit at tedious, boring boring meetings like planning mission trips or praying for others because it's not that fun. 
Now, granted, some people's personalities just like to have fun. That's good, but you've got to also have kingdom-oriented activities in your life, too. How are you going to do the hard things to make people's lives better? How are you going to reach those that you will never have a chance to talk to because they're not in your social club or your hiking group or your pottery class? So serving an idol of fun means... Here and now takes priority over eternal things. Physical pleasure is more important than state of one's soul. Jesus said he came to seek and save the lost. Jesus said it's not the well who need a physician, but the sick. And Jesus said to his father, not my will be done, but yours be done. Jesus said to us, deny yourself daily and take up your cross and follow me. That doesn't sound like a lot of of fun. And what would my parents say? And i got to stay on top of my investments. And I'm organizing a protest and have picketing to do. I I can't go to that meeting or that prayer time. Anything that would stop you from obeying Jesus, who calls us into his service as his servants, is an idol that is more important to you than Jesus. Rise above to be involved in kingdom activity. Rise above to let the Spirit of God move us into those places he wants us to serve and to make a difference. Amos chapter 7, verse 8, and chapter 8, verse 1. God asked Amos a question. What do you see? What is it that you see when you look out there? And God reveals to him what he's about to do. He sees God standing by a wall, measuring his people, and he sees judgment coming swiftly and irrevocably. When the invading army comes, people will cry out to God for help, but none will come because it's too late. It was a prophet of doom. Judgment was coming. They did not repent. They were wiped out because they didn't listen. But the question still remains, what do you see? And I think he's asking us, what do we see when we look out there? What do we see But this church, how close are we to the plumb line that God has set up? His standards and his expectations for his people. Are we lining up to the plumb line or are we departed? Are we we leaning in the wrong direction? Do we need to come back center? Let the Spirit bring us to repentance of those things that are distracting. Those things have become uh, derailing our our vision for what God wants to do. And so chapter 8, and I'll end with this. Verse 11 and 12, it says, The days are coming, says the Lord, that I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea, from the north to east. They shall run to and fro, seeking the word from the Lord, but not find it. What a scary time that would be. Hunting and searching for God to say something, and he's just silent. And that's what the people found. When they cried out to him, it was too late. There was no response. Invasion came. Judgment was meted out upon his people. And they were nearly wiped out if it wasn't for a remnant that was left. God says there's still time to repent. And repenting just means turning around from the way we've been heading and going in the right direction. It's putting our life and our church up against the plumb line of God's word and seeing where we are slipping away from his standards. So reading Amos... This, this prophet of old forces us to look at our worship. Did you worship God today? Did you truly offer him 
a sacrifice of worship? Did you offer him worship that was in truth and in spirit, that was acceptable to him? Did you come in here today saying, God, what do you want from me? I lay my life down for you, who sacrificed everything for me. The least I can do is serve you in the way you want. It causes us to ask, how are we treating those in need around us? Do we ignore them? Do we hope someone else will step up and meet them? Do the next person will see their need? Or do we say, we stop and say, God, is this your call? Is this your inv- invitation for me to be involved in somebody's life? Who are we serving? Us or God? Maybe we have strayed away from God in certain areas of our life. Then we have to choose. Will we just shrug our shoulders and say, eh, oh well, nobody's perfect? Or do we fall on our knees before God and say, God, forgive me for straying from you and from your standards, from your expectations for me? Help me to have a heart for you. Help me to love you with all of my heart and soul and strength and the mind and to serve you. God, show me how to be an instrument of peace. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father God, when it comes to a prophet, they don't mince words. They don't beat around the bush. They lay it out in truth. They lay it out clearly. And Father, may we allow you to come in and take inventory in our life. Show us what should we be about doing for your kingdom. Who should we be impacting? What person is in need right now that we need to stop and put our arm around their shoulder and say, how can I help? How can I pray for you? What do you need? I'm here. Father God, may we not be selfish, but may we be like Christ who gave his life for many. Who didn't think about his own reputation, but considered himself in a humble way, giving up all that he had just to come down and demonstrate your love on a cross for us. Father God, thank you for this day, for your word, for its instructive nature, for a chance to see what you see and to move in the right direction as we leave this place. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.